Take your Bible, if you would, turn with me to uh, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Skipping ahead a few psalms from last week. Last week we did Psalm 107, and this week we are in Psalm 110. We are made by God to worship. On the one hand, having a life of worship as our... um, as our series title is, I think they're still working on getting that up on the, uh, is it up over there, Eddie? Can you hear me? It is. There it is. Excellent. On the one hand, having a life of worship is not too hard because we're geared to worship. We will worship. If you go anywhere on earth, you'll find people worshiping things or people. Uh, you know, it might not be a little carving. Sometimes there'll be a, a place that'll worship an idol. Uh, other places, you know, they'll worship, um, a 400 horsepower idol, if you know what I mean. There are people who worship uh, things. When I was a, a soccer referee for the city of Rock Hill, um, I still remember going to the soccer little kickers on Saturday mornings. And uh, I, I remember it occurred to me, I, I turned to my, actually my mom, uh, and she said, how was, how was soccer today? And I said, well, it was Saturday morning worship service. Because you have a bunch of parents who are worshiping their children. People are made to worship. We are, we live a life of worship and we worship something. So when we talk about living a life of worship, really what we're getting to is not necessarily developing worship because we all worship things or people. The issue is putting into place the true object of worship. That is figuring out what we're worshiping and if it's right, that's great. If it's something else, we need to dethrone it and we need to make sure we're worshiping what we ought to be worshiping. What do Christians normally worship? Well, you can, you can know what people worship by a couple of things. One, the decisions we make reveal what we worship. What do you organize your life around? What is that thing that makes that final decision for you? Uh, two, what is, what are the, what are our justifications? For the decisions we make, why we make the decisions and what decisions we end up making show what's most important to us. We look at the scripture. If you ask Christians why they come to worship, if I asked you when you walked in the door, why are you here to worship? Who are you here to worship? You would say, I'm here to worship Jesus Christ. And we say Jesus Christ. We're talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the word Christ. I've said this before, but it it just bears repeating because These are things that we all need to have a grasp on. We say Christ, what we're using is the term Messiah. The the term Christ is the prophesied chosen one of God who would fulfill the expectations laid out for us in the Old Testament by the prophets, by the ones inspired by God to speak. But Messiah just means anointed one or chosen one. And in the Hebrew, that word is Mashiach. But in the Greek, the word is Christos, which is where we get our word Christ. If we were to actually translate it, we would say Jesus Christ the chosen one, or Jesus the Messiah. But we transliterate, meaning we take that Greek word Christos, and we turn it into an English word, Christ. So Jesus the Messiah is what we are saying. He's more, though, than just a Jewish Messiah. The Old Testament talks about the Jewish Messiah coming, and and he's coming for the Jews, but not just the Jews. When Jesus came as Messiah, he came for the whole world, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So to develop... A God-honoring life of worship, we need to recognize our false worship, we need to repent of that false worship, and instead we need to worship Christ. Part of worshiping Christ is recognizing who he is and the roles that he fills. Our worship has to be Christ-centered. It must be. 
We don't come here to worship ourselves. We're not here to celebrate ourselves. What matters most in this room is not what I want or what you want or what we want, but what God wants. We don't gather to make ourselves happy. We don't gather to gratify our flesh. When we enter the church, our main priority ought not to be to please ourselves. We must please God. We don't worship ourselves and we don't worship human leaders. We're not here to worship people. We're not here to worship our human government. We're not here to worship our nation. We're not here to worship anything but Messiah. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look this morning, I hope that you get a fresh set of eyes to see the Messiah as he's laid out for us, predicted in Psalm 110. Lord Jesus, we come to you today humbly as your servants and as your worshipers seeking to please you today. Lord, understand you better. Lord, we want to know more about you, more about Jesus. We want to know. Today, as we look at this psalm, I pray that, Lord, the truth of it would resonate in our hearts and we would know more about you. We would be better off and worship you better because we know more of you. Father, bless our time we have today. May our hearts and eyes be open to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In Psalm 110, we have what we call the Messianic Psalms. There are many of these, if you read your Bible, you read your Psalms, you'll notice these Messianic Psalms throughout. There are several of them that stand out, like Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 22. Some of these are referenced even in the New Testament and quoted in the New Testament Psalm. As I read Acts chapter 2, Peter's message, he referenced two different psalms. He referenced Psalm 16, which is saying that you will not leave my soul to decay. Uh, speaking of Jesus was only in the tomb for three days, his body did not decay, it was resurrected. And that's what he's speaking of in Psalm 16. And then here he also, Psalm 110 is quoted in uh, Acts chapter 2 as well. This one psalm may be the most significant, if you could say that, of the Messianic psalms. Because I think it's so, I mean, one of the reasons we know it's significant is this psalm is quoted maybe more, we think, more than any other psalm and alluded to more than any other psalm when speaking about Jesus. Because this psalm is not, as we talk about worship, this psalm is not necessarily a a psalm of worship or even a psalm about worship. It's really a psalm of the one who we worship. It's, It's a psalm of Christ. It's a prophetic psalm looking at Messiah who be coming. The promised Messiah. So, so this psalm was written about 1000 BC. About a thousand years before the coming of Christ. That's important to remember. This is a prophetic psalm. And, and, and reading it, as I mentioned, it's the most quoted psalm in the Old Testament about Christ as he acts as the perfect king and priest. We'll see. We have a couple, uh, things to recognize here. This psalm may be, may be playing the most significant role as Christ quoted this psalm, the apostles quoted the psalm, even the writer of Hebrews quoted this, everyone in the New Testament saw this as a coronation of Christ. Because the Old Testament is more than about the nation of Israel, but, but the, the text of the Old Testament anticipates a coming Messiah. And as Israel is, is showing us, the three main offices before us is, is that of a prophet, like Moses. We see the prophet uh, the, the prophet is a preacher. It's one who proclaims the truth and, and sometimes the future, the coming future, but sometimes not that, sometimes the present. And, and, and one who speaks for God, that's a prophet. We also see a priest like Aaron. Priests would offer sacrifices for the people. They would be the, the go-between, between God and man. They would, they would offer those sacrifices and pray for the people and be that intercessor. And they're the ones who had special privileges to enter into God's holy place. You also have kings 
in the, in the Old Testament, like David, kings who would represent the people before God. They would rule the people from, and, and be God's representative to the people. And hopefully they would rule in, in righteousness. But in the prophetic literature, that is in the prophecies of the Bible, when God spoke through prophets, he told them Messiah would be the kind of person who would, who would be all three roles wrapped up into one perfect person. Messiah would be a prophet like Moses. We see that in Deuteronomy 18 and Acts 3. And Jesus fulfilled that role. And this also shows us two other roles that, that Jesus is going to fulfill. He is going to be a king like David. And he is going to be a priest like Melchizedek. We see that on display here today. So first, who do we worship? When we worship Christ. We worship, number one, an enthroned king. We worship an enthroned king. What is this? King, who is this king that we see in Psalm 110? First, we notice that he is a seated king. The Lord, verse 1, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 1 shows us that he is enthroned on Yahweh's throne. He is the seated king. Notice this declaration. The first Hebrew word in this phrase is the word na'um, and that is the word said. But it's more than just the word you can say he spoke. Uh, when, when someone speaks, usually they use the word davar. But here it's a different word, na'um, which, which means a, a, an, a kind of an oracle or a message from God, a divine oracle, a divine speech coming from God. We're dealing with exalted divine statement. We see this word used um, elsewhere. See, so notice uh, Genesis 22, verse 16. He said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord. And in says the Lord, that is speaking in the same word as in verse one, the Lord said, the speech, the divine oracle that comes from God is a divine speech. And notice who's making this declaration. I don't know if you notice this, but in the first verse, there are three different people involved. The first person that's involved is the Lord. And the word Lord in your Bible should be all caps, usually lower caps. The first Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, you need to know something about your English Bible, is that is the way that the English translators have translated, this is by tradition, have translated the covenant name of God, Yahweh. When, or Jehovah is another way of saying that. Depends on your your way of, of pronouncing the Hebrew. The, the covenant name of God is Yahweh, and out of respect, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek about two hundred years before Christ, they translated that rather than saying Yahweh, they translated that as Kurios or Lord in the Hebrew. When they would read it, they would not say Yahweh. It was an unspoken name. They would do this because of reverence to God's name. They did not want to take God's name in vain. So rather than say the name Yahweh, when they came to that word, they would often say the word Adonai. That's why in the Greek or in our Bible, we have Lord and Lord. It looks like the same word, but they're not. If you look at the typeface, it'll tell you that. The the L-O-R-D with the lowercase is the word Adonai. Adonai. So you have Yahweh and then Lord is Adonai. And that's important for us to understand. The covenant name of God, Yahweh, always refers to the Lord. Adonai is a more general term for master or Lord. And in fact, you can often refer to people as Adonai. Like you would say, my master, my Lord. It's a term of respect. And here, there are two people already we've noticed. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Adonai, my Lord. And there's a third, my. Who's the my referring to here? We look back at the title. It says, a psalm of David. 
The my here is referencing David. David is speaking. And when he says Yahweh, the Lord, is speaking to my Lord, David's Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David is seeing, David is hearing and observing this prophetic call. And we know this is David further because Jesus actually uses this in his ministry. In, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is speaking and he says, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit. Just if you stop there, it's amazing to see that we have a couple things that Jesus authenticates. Number one is that David is the one who wrote this Psalm, Psalm 110. Secondly, is that when David is writing this Psalm and speaking this Psalm, he's not just writing it out of his own head. Rather, he is speaking, being filled by the Spirit of God. We call this inspiration. The fact that the Spirit of God moved men to speak the truth of God and inscribe it for us today. That is inspiration. And so David himself, Jesus says this, David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make enemies, your enemies, your footstool. Therefore, David, notice Jesus' reasoning. David himself calls him Lord. How is he there then his son? He recognizes that the Adonai here is referencing a coming king who would be a son of David. So we need to distinguish these two lords or else we're going to get very, very confused. And so for probably the most of this message, when I say Yahweh, I'm referring to capital L-O-R-D, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when I say Adonai, I'm referring to L, lower O-R-D, just to keep this separated and understand that Adonai refers to the coming Lord, the coming Christ, and Yahweh here references God the Father. So in this one response, Jesus is confirming David's authorship. He's affirming the Bible is inspired, and he sees himself, Jesus sees himself as fulfillment of this psalm. So what we notice from even this first verse is that David's son, Messiah, is greater than David. David's son is greater than David. Adonai, he calls him Lord. Now, this may not shake you to your core as much as it would have shaken a Jewish con- audience, a congregation. But, but you know, today, I might say to my son, no, sir, you don't do that. And he might say, may I have uh, some ice cream? And I might say, yes, sir, you can. But, but that's not really a sign of respect. That's just me being a dad and talking to my son. But, but, but the, the reverence here is undeniable. And in the Jewish culture of the hierarchy of fathers over sons, you would never call your son Lord. You would never call your child Sir. That is something that is, they are going to call you Lord. They are going to look back at you and call you master. And so for David to look and say, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my, my Lord, sit at my right hand. That he looks down into the, the, the future. He, he sees a vision of God. And he says that I will, the Lord is speaking to my Lord, my master. David recognizes here in Psalm 110, there is coming one greater than him. There is coming one greater than he is. Therefore, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is greater than David. Second, we see in the book of Hebrews that Messiah is greater than angels. In the New Testament, he, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Messiah is greater than angels, not just greater than David. 
In fact, he uses this verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? So, so he's saying that you should sit at my right hand. The one sitting at the right hand of God is none other than Messiah himself. He is sharing God's throne. And, and further, the fact that he's seated means that his work is accomplished, means that his work is done. If we keep going to the book of Hebrews, we find this in Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do? What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. That sounds familiar. Again, referencing Psalm 110. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We see here the picture of Messiah greater than the angels. Messiah greater than David. And he has dominion by Yahweh's power. He says, till I make your enemies your footstool, you'll sit here. This enthronement will happen as the Lord, as Yahweh makes the enemies of Messiah to be a stool for his feet. Literally to be something to place your feet on for your feet. It's an emphasis there on your feet. Again, cultural note here. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember this, but there were years ago, there was a, uh, a time when President Bush was giving a speech and he was overseas and there was a great offense taken because one of the people in the audience took off their shoe and threw it at him. Do you remember this? Th- that was so offensive. To us, it's like, see, what is he doing? Like that, that, That's such an odd, random thing. Like, why, why your shoe? I mean, I know why ladies take off their shoe to smash bugs and, 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 or maybe men do that too. I don't know. Uh, but, but the point being that, that, that seems kind of odd to us, but in this culture, and there is a uncleanliness about the feet and to place something under your foot means ultimate domination. It means ultimate conquering. Even Joshua, remember they placed their feet on the necks of the Kings. We just talked about that in my, when I preached through Joshua recently. And here, the point being is that God is making them his servants. In Acts chapter 5, God our Father raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. God has exalted Jesus Christ to his throne. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is king. He is an enthroned king. We see that he is a seated king. And secondly, he is a ruling king. He will rule by Yahweh's strength. We see strength and power in verse two. Yahweh shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The backbone of this strength is Yahweh. That is the Lord. Yahweh himself will be the backbone. He will send out the rod, the scepter of strength that will come out of Zion, out of Jerusalem. The scepter is an important messianic term as well. We see it a couple times very early in the Bible. First in Genesis chapter 49, in a prophecy here about Judah, Jacob is calling his sons to come to him. And he prophesies here and says the scepter, the signal of authority, the, the sign of authority, that rod of authority, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, until the one who it belongs comes. That's what Shiloh means. 
To him shall be the obedience of the people. Speaking of Messiah here, the, the scepter. And then even in Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. This is probably what the wise men read and knew about when they came to see the star. But we notice here the audience of this is Messiah. He says, uh, he says um, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength, that is Messiah's strength, out of, out of Zion. He will reign as the eternal king, fulfilling the prophetic word of David. And his responsibility here, he says, rule. That's a command for this Messiah, what he is to do, his commissioning. Rule in the midst of your enemies with the scepter of Yahweh. He will be the seated king and he will be the ruling king. Jesus as the ruler, the one who is king. And then thirdly, he will be a supported king. In verse 3, we see this. This verse says, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have due of your youth. Notice this word volunteers. That is when Messiah is enthroned, he's not going to be alone. That is in the day of his power, in the day he's enthroned, the people who will be all around him. He's going to have a lot of recruits. He will have many people who surround him and support him. And this picture of support, as we see Adonai, Messiah, who has volunteers coming to assist him as he conquers. So we have a couple more images that are kind of cryptic and difficult for us to understand. Let's take a look at them. He says, first, in the beauty of holiness, that is the picture here, I believe, is that as Messiah stands with his supporters, he's arrayed in holy attire. That is, he is in stunning clothes fit for a king. We see pictures like this in the book of Revelation as we see images of Jesus coming and he's always clothed in stunning holy attire. And then this next two phrases, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. This is challenging. In fact, I think many uh, English translations that I consulted on this have a note telling you that this verse is very difficult to translate. They're not wrong. It's a very challenging verse. But as I've looked at this, probably the best way I could understand this, and I hope it helps you understand it as well, is that the young men, that is the soldiers and talented men of the nation, will show up to support the king, the Messiah, like dew comes in the morning. That is, you don't really know exactly when it came or how it happened, but there it is. It's a vivid picture. If you read it again, from the womb of the morning or from the birth of the morning, from the beginning of the morning, you have the dew of your youths or youth, the strong young men. Another way of translating this is arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. That's another translation there. Similar idea. The the picture here is there's an impressive almighty enthroned king who has support from the faithful and Messiah and Adonai here reigns as this king, but he's not just king. Remember, there's more than one role here. He's also worshiped. We worship an established priest, an established priest. This is so important because the prophetic Psalm is giving us this role of Messiah King, David's Lord. He proves greater than a king because Messiah King is also Messiah priest. He's the great high priest, and he has unique function. Notice with me, first of all, that he has an eternal divine oath given to him. Verse 4, Yahweh has sworn and will not relent. 
What does it mean that the Lord or Yahweh has sworn something? Uh, we break our promises, even not intentionally. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally. Sometimes things come in that we can't control, and they just take away our ability to keep our promises. And that's terrible, but that's what happens sometimes. And yet God says that He is a God who swears and will not relent. When God swears something, we know it's going to happen. The second part of this, He will not relent, clarifies what He's saying there. God has sworn something that He will not roll back. And I think this is fascinating because there are times when God says something, but there is the potential that He will roll it back. God, God does say this will happen with the expectation that if something changes, He has the authority to then roll it back. I think of the, the example of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. Notice what happens in Jonah chapter 3. As Jonah comes and speaks his message, when you remember the story, when Jonah preaches, does his message have any hope in it at all to the Ninevites? Not at all. All he says is that God's going to destroy you. It's the Ninevites who deduce within themselves, wait a second, if God was going to destroy us and there was no hope, why would he send a prophet? There must be some kind of hope here. Jonah did not want them to repent so much that he didn't even tell them that repenting was an option. But look here, he says, who can tell? This is the Ninevite speaking. Who can tell if God will turn and relent? That's our word, relent, recant, and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They don't even know. And like, we really hope. That if we repent, that God won't do what he says he's going to do. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God did what? Relented. He rolled back. It's like God's holding the judgment over their head, and he decides to pull it away. If they had not changed, he would have let that judgment fall on them. But for a moment, he relents from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Do you know this frustrated Jonah. It frustrated Jonah that God was a God who relents. So I pray, prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know, this is him complaining, by the way, for I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. That's our word again. When Jonah gets angry at God for relenting, for holding back the punishment that he was going to punish them, he gets angry. Does he not realize that he has been benefiting from God's mercy this whole time? Does he not realize that God has been merciful to him and rescuing him when he jumped, was thrown off that boat and swallowed by that great fish and spit up on the... You realize God saved his life along the way and Jonah is looking at these people with anger because God is a God who relents. But notice in Psalm 110 and verse 4, the Lord has sworn in this case, he will not relent. There are times when God says, I have a conditional statement. I have a conditional series here, a conditional thing. If you do this, I will relent. But now there is no relenting to this eternal divine oath because it is an eternal priesthood. He says, you, speaking to Adonai, speaking to Messiah, are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ, a priest after Melchizedek. We see Melchizedek mentioned 
in Genesis chapter 14. The amazing thing about this, as we go through this, I'm very thankful. Pastor Drew preached through the book of Hebrews not too long ago, and we talked a lot about Melchizedek. So I'm going to assume that you know some of that, but I won't assume you know all of it. But notice in, in, in Genesis chapter 14, we have the scene where Abraham comes upon Melchizedek, and he's the king of Salem. Salem means peace, and probably that is a early pre-Davidic uh, reference to Jerusalem. So he is the king of Jerusalem, but what else is he? He's a priest. Melchizedek is both priest and king. And he's the king of Salem, and he is not a Jew. He is a Gentile, priest of the Most High God. And Melchizedek, being not of the Aaronic priesthood. Remember, Moses and, and Aaron come much, much later. Here, he's a priest of the Most High God, and he blesses and says, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. That is, Abraham, Abram here, worshiped the Lord by giving a tithe to the priest, and the priest blesses Abram. There's a tithe given and a blessing received. But notice he is the king of Salem. He is the priest of the Most High God. And we see this reference in Hebrews chapter 7 as he pulls us all together. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, Notice the description of him without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor ending of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. The picture here is that Melchizedek, we don't have any record of his father or mother. We don't know where he came from. That's very unusual. You read your Bible and what's the most boring part of the Bible? The genealogies. They're everywhere. You start reading like, oh no, not another one of these lists. Ah, I have to read, wade through this guy who begat this guy, begat this guy, begat that guy. And you know what most of us do? We look at the next couple pages. Where, where does this end? Oh, there it is. I'm going to skip it. But this was very important to the Jewish people. Their genealogies were very important because who was a son of whom mattered to them. But Melchizedek had no father, no mother that we know of. We don't understand when he was born or when he died. And here he says it's like the son of God. He's a type of Christ in this image, in this idea. That, and then notice here that Christ is a priest, but he's not an Aaronic priest because Aaron's priesthood is associated with what nation? The nation of Israel. But we're not talking about Israel. We're talking about the world. We're talking about more than just Israel. And so if he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who's not a Jew, think about what's going on here. He's saying Christ is established here. The king who's coming after David is not going to be a priest after Aaron's priesthood. He's going to be a priest after Melchizedek's priesthood, a eternal priesthood. He will not relent a priest forever. And the only way you'll have a priest forever is if that priest lives forever. And that's the king and the priest that we have. In fact, this goes further. In the book of Zechariah, we have more prophecies about this. We have this description of this one called the branch, who he describes. And then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for his place he shall branch out. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord and bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. That's the kingly form. And he shall be a priest on his throne. That's the priestly function. 
Here we have the one we worship, Jesus Messiah, Psalm 110, not only being the king who rules and reigns, but also priest according to the order of Melchizedek, king and priest. As we keep moving, we see thirdly, we worship a discerning, the discerning judge. In verse 5, we see this Messiah judging the kings of the world, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. You're speaking to Yahweh. The Lord, Messiah, is at the right hand. He's sitting there, and while he's sitting there, he does the work of a judge. He executes kings. He has superior authority even over the kings of the earth. Those who are the leaders of nations, he will judge rightly. He will judge even kings. And that is a good thing to know. Because it seems sometimes like leaders of political, political leaders of nations have no accountability. It seems like some of the wicked men of this world, men who lead nations, do terrible, wicked things and are never held account for what they've done. Yet we know that God will hold them into account by judging them. Secondly, we'll see he judges the nations. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many Countries. In judging the nations, the image then turns to the battlefield. Messiah is acting as a judge. He will, he, the people who have set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, as we saw in Psalm 2, who have rejected his authority, will be judged. This is important for us to consider because Paul tells us in his letter to the Thessalonians that when Jesus comes back, he'll come back with a different temperament. In his first coming, when Jesus came, he came humble as a babe in a manger, lived meek and mild, and died at the hands of wicked men. But when he comes back a second time, he will not come as a suffering servant. He will come as a victorious, righteous, and powerful judge king. 1 Thessalonians 1.7, To give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a distinction. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction, he says. The wrath of the Lamb will be on full display. Jesus, not just the suffering servant, but the risen King. You keep reading, it says in Revelation 19, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written which no one knew except himself. Except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed with fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He shall tread, he himself treads the winepresses of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Christ the Messiah will judge the kings. He will judge the nations, and his judging leads to peace. We see that in verse 7, he shall drink the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up 
his head or the head. The last scene is stunning. It's that the warrior has chased away. He has judged righteously and the troops are in run, are running away. And this king stops for a moment. This judge stops for a moment. The soldier stops for a moment by a brook, has enough time to sit down and enjoy the fruit of his labor. He smiles as he reaches down and gets some water from the brook and he lifts up his head. Lifting up the head has the idea of having, having confidence. He's not ashamed of anything. He looks up and he sees the bad guys in disarray, running away from him in this peace that comes the calmness of having a brook by the side of the road and lifting up his head. He'll be exalted. He'll be recognized by all to have the authority that is truly his. As I conclude, I'd like to talk about Jesus Christ, who is the son of David. David recognized that his son would be his Lord. It's a tremendous, tremendous truth. The great King David worshipped someone. He worshipped his son, the coming Messiah. So when Jesus was called on by people in their time of need, what did they call him? Notice what they, what they say in Matthew 9, 27. Jesus departed from there. Two blind men followed him, crying out and saying what? Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, there were lots of sons of David. There were a lot of them. Half the country probably claimed it's like, you know, around here, but it claims to be, you know, descended from some president or something. And everyone, oh, I'm a son of David. I'm a, but there, he's saying the son of David. There's a difference. Then they call on him as the son of David. In fact, the demons respond. One brought to him who was even possessed, blinded, mute, and healed him so that the blinded, mute man saw and spake. And the, all the multitudes were made and said, could this be, could this one who's healing be the son of David? They knew who his lineage was. He was of David. But, but the son of David, the one that he spoke of, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's the son of David they're referencing here. He came to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, we must worship him. Notice what David or what Thomas says in John. When we see at the end of John, Thomas bowing, he answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. The word Lord there, kurios, is the same word that was translated from Adonai earlier. He's referencing Jesus as being his Lord. The same Lord that David saw. You see here, our responsibility, friends, we're made to worship. I said this at the beginning. We are made to worship. We worship something. And I beg you today, do not spend your life Worshipping something that will burn up, turn to dust. You spend your whole life worshipping things that will disappear and be no more. We've all known friends. You remember John Monti used to be here at this church. The reason he moved to Rock Hill was because his house burned to the ground in Georgia. And he came up here to be near family. He's since gone on to be with the Lord. We talked, and he said the hardest thing about that was losing 
everything he had built up for his entire life. They built that house, and they watched it burn. One day, all of our things, all the stuff we spend our life consumed with, we burned, destroyed. And in that day, I wonder how many of us have anything left to show for it. When we worship, we are to worship the king who is enthroned, the priest established and the judge who was discerning. When you worship and you focus on that which is eternal, there will be eternal rewards. Jesus says, would you rather have gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble? Certain things we worship today will be burned up. Those things must be dethroned from our lives. Maybe as we've been talking, there are things that pop up in your mind. Ah, I've been worshiping that, spending a lot of time on that, but focusing on this. Today, if you're a Christian, you need to repent of that sin and ask God to give you strength to enthrone him as the king. 